Hello, and welcome to episode 44 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Morgan Childs, a journalist based in the Czech Republic who is co-host and producer of the podcast Foreign Insiders. As we'll discuss in the interview, I came across Morgan's podcast because I was looking up foreign correspondence in Spotify and saw that there was a teaser episode for another podcast that also had the name Foreign Correspondence. That is Morgan's podcast. So I reached out to her by email and we worked it all out. Morgan was very nice about it. And so then, of course, I had to have her on the podcast. Morgan will talk about her struggles and successes as a freelance writer in the Czech Republic. Eastern Europe is not an easy region to report on, mostly because you really have to convince American readers and editors why it should interest them. She'll talk about her big break getting a long feature story on a made-up country into GQ magazine, but we'll also discuss how even after that, things weren't exactly easy. Now, Morgan has found a new beginning as an audio journalist. Her podcast, Foreign Insiders, looks at migration in the Czech Republic. I'm not terribly familiar with the Czech Republic myself, so I was surprised by exactly how much I didn't know and the fascinating stories of migration that they find there. In the first few episodes alone, you'll see the immense diversity of the country. It starts with the harrowing stories of migrants in former Yugoslavia that fled to what is today Czech Republic, although I'm pretty sure around that time it was also breaking up from Czechoslovakia. In the second episode, they look at gay migrants who left Kazakhstan, an intensely homophobic country, in order to continue running their LGBT website for Kazakhs that they are now running out of Prague. They also look at the racism black residents in the country face. You might not realize it, but there were also Black Lives Matter protests in Eastern Europe. I believe they have about eight episodes out now at the moment, and they're all on compelling subjects, but really it is more about the artful way that Foreign Insiders tells their stories. This is really high-level audio storytelling that is easily on the level of NPR or any major radio broadcaster in terms of quality. Morgan, as you'll be able to tell in this interview, has a voice made for radio. So if you like what you hear in this conversation, look up Foreign Insiders wherever you get your podcasts and give it a listen. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Morgan Childs, producer of the Foreign Insiders podcast, based in the Czech Republic. To warm up a little bit, we usually start with, if you could just tell me what your physical surroundings are right now, where you are geographically, what time it is, and uh, what you've been up to for work in the past week. Yeah, it's uh, a little after five o'clock on Sunday afternoon. I'm in Prague. I live in Prague 3 in a pretty dark apartment, <laughs> and it's dark outside, it's been snowing off and on all week, so Prague is really lovely right now. And I'm a Texan, so I really love snow. It's magic every time it snows. I feel like a kid again. <laughs> I'm in my apartment. My cat is going to start asking for food probably over the course of this interview, so we may have to pause so I can feed her. Yeah, this week, I, you know, you're, we're talking at an interesting time because I'm trying to make a bit of a career shift, but I've been working on my podcast, Foreign Insiders, sort of I spent Monday late into the night working on the episode that was published Tuesday, and off and on through the week, I'm trying to reproduce some episodes that I put together a while back and then sort of reformulate it. I'm still lining up interviews for the end of the series, and I do a bit of copywriting as well. 
I'm scoping out new work for myself, trying to make a bit of a shift. I'm new to audio, but I think I've hit on something here that I really love. So beginning to think sort of long term about what I'd like to be doing if the pandemic ever comes to an end. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like you're very, very busy. I know you launched your podcast in December, so it sounds like you're pretty much full time on that and then doing all this other stuff on top of it. Yeah, you know, it's an expensive passion project, the podcast, but it's something that I feel really strongly about. And so does my co-host, Pepe, Giuseppe Picaca is his name. But I think, you know, we can talk about trying to make a go at it as a as a freelancer and especially as a freelancer who's never worked full time, who has no contacts, who's, you know, in a part of the world that a lot of her editors have never been to. It's tough. And I I took most of 2019 off from journalism and then really hit the ground running with the podcast in 2020. And I really do feel like this is me, you know, (laughs) it took a while to get there. But this really feels like what I should be working on. And it brings so much energy, you know, rather than stripping it away. So I feel really lucky to be doing it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And you really can't tell you're new to it. I mean, your sound mixing is pretty amazing. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. You know, it took me, it's taken me a long time to get where I am. And I'm still like nowhere near uh, radio quality. Whereas I feel like yours, you know, would fit right in at NPR or any number of places. Well, our P-pops are out of control, but, you know, we're... (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So then we'll we'll get back to the podcast uh, Foreign Insiders a bit later on. But first, for the biography section of the interview, we like to know how you got to where you are today. And to start way, way back at the beginning, if you could just tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you showed any early interest in journalism. Yeah, I was born in Houston, Texas, and grew up there. My parents are both from Houston also. I went to a sort of East Coast style prep school. I don't know if you've seen the movie Rushmore, Wes Anderson's movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I went to that school. He he went there too and sort of loosely based it. It's a co-ed school, but sort of loosely based it on the school. Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos founder, has also brought some attention to the school. She's a notable alumna. So I went to that school and was on the on the newspaper there and had the kind of inspiring journalism teacher, newspaper advisor that you see in in high school movies. And it's (laughs) funny as somebody who hasn't had any training whatsoever, I still sort of feel like everything I know about journalism, I learned from Catherine Vanderpool, you know, who's also my Latin teacher. And yeah, so sort of worked my way up the ranks through the paper in high school, and then went to college and just sort of felt burnt out on it and studied theater, actually. So wrote a couple pieces for the Columbia Spectator. I went to Barnard College, the Women's College of Columbia. I wrote a couple pieces for the Spectator, but really sort of stayed away from it. And I was studying playwriting, in fact, which was the perfect thing. I mean, it was just in New York City. It was the, it was such a inspiring atmosphere. I met a lot of interesting people, loved my major, loved the people that studied with me, and was seeing so much and just sort of swimming in this creative environment. And when I had the chance to study abroad, I really felt like I didn't want to step away from theater entirely or from the arts. So even though I'd studied Spanish, I couldn't find a great program that would give me the opportunity to see a lot of theater in the countries where I would be speaking Spanish and receiving college credit. So I found a program in the Czech Republic. The theme was post-communist transition in the arts. And I came here and (laughs) I had had a semester of Czech at Columbia. 
you know, largely didn't understand the language and suddenly was seeing a lot of theater that I didn't understand and paying attention to elements of theater that I think I hadn't I was really paying attention to light design and sound design in a way that I wasn't before and was much more interested in movement and dance theater. And so when I came back to New York, I was a real snob. I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't love the way I felt like money was being spent to produce new work anymore. I, I wish I could see more messy theater, more experiments on the stage than, than I was seeing in New York at the time. Why do I tell you all of this? <laughs> <laughs> it got you to the Czech Republic for the first time. Oh, that's right. I did get me to the Czech Republic. So, it, you know, it was a formative experience. It was a tough semester that I had here. I got scarlet fever, which is oh, wow. apparently you can still get. And I was kind of down for the count for about a month. And what was sort of interesting looking back is that's when I started listening to podcasts, which, you know, I did every day for 10 years before I thought maybe I should make one of my own. But when I was finishing school, I really, you know, the economy wasn't great. And I had sort of hit my stride academically, but hadn't applied to any PhD programs or really considered it seriously. And my best friend in college was working full time at the New Yorker for six months before we graduated. And, you know, it was a, the kind of place where there were phenomenal students and I felt really small and really... Like I, I couldn't have the career that I that I wanted because I hadn't even identified it. I was just so not ready to be finished with school, I think. And I found this program here in Prague at Charles University, a critical theory program in the English department. I thought, well, this is great. I can take that degree and go and get a PhD in performance studies later if I want to. <laughs> with the eventual goal of uh, teaching or with, uh, did you still? I really didn't think that far in advance. <laughs> I think I just was <laughs> lost, you know? I mean, I it wasn't like I spent six months in the Czech Republic as an exchange student and thought, this is my place, you know? I never had that experience. You know, it seemed like the natural fit. And at that time, I spoke a little bit of Czech and I knew a couple people here. I sort of, I had one friend here. So I moved here. I came with two suitcases thinking, you know, it was a, two-year program. And I thought, oh, that's really one year longer than I want to live in the Czech Republic. And now it's been nine years. <laughs> so that's why I'm here. Two weeks into the program that I thought, oh, forget this. You know, I'm not, academia is not for me, which it isn't. But I did do the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just curious. It seems like I imagine not a ton of Americans study Czech. Do Are there a ton of foreigners learning Czech there? Or is it kind of unusual, I guess I would say? You know, it's the kind of place, uh, and, you know, we'll talk about how welcoming this country is of foreigners in general. I think, I mean, one aspect of living here uh, and being from another country is the fact that the language is incredibly challenging and that Czechs get frustrated with how few people speak the language. So, yes, there are a ton of foreigners here, but in terms of speaking Czech fellow Slavic speakers do a much better job. I guess, is it is it unusual that you speak Czech? Like, I imagine many foreigners there get by just speaking English. I still struggle greatly with Czech. I speak okay. more than most Americans here, I would say. But it's enormously challenging. 
And, you know, the, the more that I've learned, the more at home I've felt here. And definitely the better my work has been. It's been really hard to maintain it over the past year because I'm just speaking with so few people. At the moment, I'm not out and about in the city like I usually am. But, you know, Ukrainians can learn it. I've got a good friend here who's Polish, and she has slowly committed herself to learning it and speaking it. But if you grew up studying Romance languages, it's another beast entirely. And, you know, enough people speak English that it really takes a great amount of commitment <laughs> to continue to, to learn and speak and deepen your skills. Right, yeah. And so, yeah, how did you get from this program, studying theater, to being a journalist? When I was finishing my master's, I was writing my thesis about James Agee's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which I know that... Charles Maines mentioned in the episode this morning. It's an important book to me. It's a great text to slip into, to spend a lot of time with, but like everybody writing their master's thesis, I was sort of miserable <laughs> and particularly miserable because I knew that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to go on with my academic career and it just felt sort of like not the right thing for me to be spending so much effort and energy on. But it's funny and I really believe in podcasts like this one, because the long-form podcast made such a huge difference in my life and career. I started listening to it about that time. That was 2014, 2015. And really felt for the first time like, ah, like that, that's what I want, you know. That's what I'd like to be doing with my particular skill set. And so, you know, as I was finishing the degree, I was sort of, I began making a spreadsheet of ideas that I wanted to pitch. And slowly started tracking down editors' emails on Twitter and in various Facebook groups and started sending ideas out, you know, largely about the Czech Republic. I also was you know, doing a lot of food writing at the time. I was a really committed home cook and started primarily with food writing. And it was funny, in preparing to talk to you today, I searched in my Gmail, I searched pitch, you know, and went all the way back, years back to my very first pitches. They all look the same in Gmail. You know, you see me and the number two, and it's just like, you know, a pitch to an editor, no response. I follow up a week later, no response, you know. And that was <laughs> the first, I don't know how many months of pitches. And I really feel like I must have aged 20 years in the last five because I never would have continued on if I were doing that now. But I just, I had the fire under me. And I really sort of wanted the careers of people that I heard on the long-form podcast. And, you know, I was a great reader of of long-form reporting of the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. So I kept trying and trying and trying. And and finally, I remember I landed a, a 300 words in Savur magazine, the food magazine. And my grandmother was a great reader of Savur. It was always around her house. And I just I felt like I had hit the big time. You know, people really want to be in the New York Times. I see that all the time in professional groups. You know, they always want to land the New York Times. And for me, it was like I had made it. And I knew from 300 <laughs> words about open face sandwiches that like I had such confidence. I thought, that's it. I knew I knew I could do it. And slowly I did build a body of clips. It's remarkable how much confidence I had looking back. But I, that's, I think, what you need if you're freelance and you're sort of silly enough to try to make a go of it as a total nobody in a country that I think very few Americans, which is largely the audience I was working for, are interested in or, or know very much about or want to learn very much about. 
from talking to past guests, it does seem at least like for that part of the world, since Eastern Europe, basically, there aren't a ton of full-time correspondents out there. So, you know, you might be pitching editors who haven't had a story from the Czech Republic in a year or two um, before you came along. So yeah, there's definitely space to grow there. So you start doing more food stuff. Can you give us kind of, I guess, a few other highlights or what, what other type of stuff are you doing? Those early days, it's hard to remember. I found that the way I could get editors' attention was with these weird Czech stories. You know, I really feel ambivalent about a lot of the work that I was doing at the very beginning because I felt like I could only get strangers' attention with these really kooky stories. You know, a lot of them I feel really proud of, although as a body of work, I'm not sure that it paints the best picture of this country or this part of the world, but a really great early byline for me was for Lucky Peach, which has since folded about the snail farming industry in Central Europe. <laughs> I learned that the vast majority of French escargot is not actually French. It's born and raised in the countries of formerly communist Europe. And so I went to an independent snail farm in a little town outside of the city <laughs> and then talked with a, <laughs> with a farmer there. And, you know, it's a funny piece. I really like that piece. But that was how it went. I felt like I really needed offbeat stuff to get people's attention. And it, it, was a, it still breaks my heart a little bit that some of the more important stories I wanted to place were really hard to find a home for or I just simply couldn't find a home for. And especially because I, I was really getting started in 2014, 2015, and then 2016, at a time when so much was changing geopolitically and populism was on the rise everywhere. You know, it just was like a, there were so many important things that were shifting and so many ways that the U.S. was shifting that Central Europe had already sort of set a precedent for. And yet I felt like my editors didn't see the parallels in a way that I, I just wanted to shake their shoulders and say, look at what's going on with Trump. It's already gone on in Poland and in Hungary. I mean, look at how quickly the Law and Justice Party could come in to Poland and just completely strip civil liberties away from its people. There are so many parallels, and yet there's so much ignorance and lack of curiosity, I think, about this part of the world. So I began to feel really I don't know. I, I began to have a sort of pit in my stomach about the work that I was doing over time. This is really sort of negative. I like I said, I I like <laughs> I like the work that I did, and you know, some of the goofiest pieces that I wrote are the ones that I'm most proud of. You know, an editor at Vice sent me to this tiny town in Moravia where they produce this famously smelly cheese. Yeah, I said, great. You know, it's going to make 150 bucks or 200 dollars on this story. It's not going to win any Pulitzers. <laughs> it was not contributing anything to the capital D discourse. But I love that piece. I, I love a lot of the goofy work that I did. But looking back, I wish I had pushed harder, I think, for some of the more consequential stories that I could have told during that time. Sure. Yeah, I imagine it can be frustrating if you're only getting the goofy stories and not able to get the serious political stories about what's going on in Czech Republic and rise of populism and all that. Uh, out of curiosity, I mean, were you also doing work outside of Czech Republic and bordering countries much? Yes, I did a little bit of reporting from Poland. 
Another food magazine comes to mind. I did a story about Poland's milk bars, which are these low-cost canteens serving really cheap food, but very traditional Polish fare. They're sort of beloved in the national culture, and they're dwindling. They're dying out, and was able to take a look at what was changing politically in the country through the lens of these milk bars. And I developed a real fondness for Ukraine after one visit to Kiev and One of the stories that was really important to me that I had a hard time placing was about a violinist who now lives in Berlin who flies back fairly regularly to Donetsk, to the oblast in eastern Ukraine, and plays her violin in family homes and community centers, you know, to distract people from the sounds of shelling overhead, from the sounds of war. And I met her, you know, I I set up an interview with her without having any sort of outlet on board and was so taken with her. She's really, I think flinty was the word that I used in the piece, which I finally placed. (laughs) She's a tough broad. She's a really cool person with a good sense of humor and she's tough as nails. But her work was so important to her and she believed so deeply that she was making a real difference. And the fact that she continued to put herself in harm's way just in order to play music in people's homes seemed tremendously moving to me. And I was really shocked when I was trying to place the story, how nobody else seemed to think so too. You know, I shopped that one around everywhere. And the comment that I got was, you know, this is the kind of thing that we would assign to a staff writer. It's really tough, you know, for for your journalism school listeners. I, I have to say that I can't really recommend trying to go about this, digging around for emails on Twitter without knowing anybody, without ever having worked in the States and then trying to make a name for yourself in American media. It was disheartening at times. But anyway, that piece finally found a home at BBC Culture, and I'm grateful for that. Oh, great. And so, I mean, as a freelancer, it often takes a while to get going. I mean, you know, certainly in China, people teach English and do various things to get by. How long did it take to kind of get enough assignments to be a full-time freelance journalist and not somebody who just dabbles? Did it take quite a while or how how does that work? Probably took a year. I had saved a bunch. I was living off of savings at the beginning And I wrote a piece about this libertarian micronation between Serbia and Croatia that got a lot of attention. And after that, it became much easier to pitch stories and get responses. The look of my Gmail inbox changed a bit. But it was tough and I burned out. I think I really had to fight the feeling that my journalism was a a hobby that needed to be funded. It's really hard to land big enough stories as a freelancer that you can sink your teeth into and that are financially viable. And so for every, you know, I think I made $750 for the Liberland story. For every one of those, there were six more that paid 150 bucks, 200 So I've always been a freelancer, but even when journalism was paying my bills. It was not easy. It was always pinning things together. And I always had a lot of anxiety around it. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely know how how that goes. I've dabbled in freelancing at various points. And it sounds like you were kind of in the same era I was doing it when a lot of places would maybe pay you only $150, $250. And like, if you need to actually 
go anywhere or have any sort of expenses. It is not a great money making operation. And, you know, I ended up, how did I make my money? I worked, you know, I wrote a report for an accounting firm that paid me like 10 grand and was extremely boring. But, uh, you know, it it was the money I needed to get by. And like, you know, I had my regular gig working for a specialist financial like publication where I'd read like SEC documents. (laughs) And like, those were the things that like funded the article in the Atlantic that pays me $250 or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I really wish that people would be more upfront about this with one another and on shows like this, because a lot of us have to do a lot of things to keep all the balls in the air and to make it work. And it just seems like there's a lot of magic happening from the outside, but there's real hustle involved in making it work as a freelance journalist of any kind, especially one who's just getting started. I mean, do those places still operate like that? Because are they still paying like, I feel like there was an era where they just needed so much churn. And like, I don't know if they have that same philosophy anymore. So I'm not sure if they're still paying dirt and just need high volume or or what the deal is. Do you think it's changed at all? I would be surprised if not. But I don't know. I haven't really been in the pitching game like since 2000, early 2019. So hard to say. Gotcha. Okay. So you said you kind of burned out. I mean, if you're willing to talk a little bit about that and the break you took and kind of take us from, you know, those freelancing days through your break up to present. Yeah. It's funny. I mentioned this story, this Liberland story, and you land a piece like that in a Condé Nast magazine. And I think I had sort of envisioned that a piece like this would transport me to some level of my career that didn't, couldn't exist. And got up the next morning after it ran and it still was at the mercy of my own you know imagination and nobody's paying you for the time to think and to read and to research and to formulate other big ideas I got back on the horse and I did it for a while obviously but at a certain point I did get tired and I developed some autoimmune things and I remember I was doing a piece another one of these pieces for Vice they sent me to another small town which had built a museum to its history in marzipan you know you could tell the the story of this <laughs> czech town in marzipan and and again I, I think i like the finished piece i haven't read it in a while it was fun to report but i remember i was on the train coming back and it was during the justice kavanaugh's hearings and just sort of feeling just exhausted i mean everybody was exhausted at that time all i think all americans were exhausted at that time but also feeling like i need to be doing something that i feel more strongly about because this doesn't give me enough energy to take part in a meaningful way in the world that we're now living in so yeah i end up sort of consciously unconsciously taking that next year off i have done copywriting and content writing for various places for many years and sort of I made an agreement with myself only to say yes to high paying things that wouldn't take an enormous amount of energy and sort of rested and changed my diet and kind of got back on my feet. And one thing that I did in that year in the summer was apply for a six week certificate course in radio production at IADT, the Institute for Art, Design and Technology in Dublin. And afterwards I had a lot of a lot of doubts. Is this what I want is this a good use of six weeks of my life and money and time and energy and sort of just feeling tired and uninspired but when I ended up there there was no doubt in my mind that it was the right decision and I think a great part of that 
you know, it was a lot of training for how to work in a radio studio. It was a lot of time spent doing something that I don't know if I'll do. It didn't give me great training for building a podcast per se, but it put me in the company of people who were really excited about what they were studying, what they were listening to, what they wanted to make. I think in the way that people say an MFA is great for the time it gives you and the inspiration it surrounds you with. I think this program worked in a sort of similar way. So that was the first six weeks of 2020 I spent in Dublin and came back feeling refreshed and (laughs) more optimistic than I had in a while and then was able to hit the ground running working on Foreign Insiders, which is the podcast I'm producing now about foreigners in the Czech Republic. But uh, I mean, the first six weeks of 2020, so pandemic hits like right after that, right? It was amazing timing. It was great. (laughs) I I mean, you know, we were reading the news from China at the time. And I remember, oh, God, what an idiot. I remember saying, well, it doesn't sound that bad. It sounds like a cold. I feel foolish looking back. But yes, came back just in time to be locked down in my Prague apartment. And listening to the podcast, I do wonder if, uh, so this, it was being recorded in pandemic times. That's what I keep wondering. Are they, you know, wearing masks and (laughs) sitting far away and sticking their mics in these people's direction? Has it, has it all been taped during pandemic times? We did a couple of interviews in 2019, at the end of 2019. So that was easy enough. And yes, I've done a lot of remote recording The Czech Republic has had a funny, we had this weird summer of pretending that everything was fine and that there was no pandemic. And I'm as guilty as anybody else in sort of taking part in the denial, this national denial. But everything opened up here May until, goodness, October, I suppose. I mean, sort of life was running as usual. So we were able to get a lot of stuff done during that period. Although now looking back, I wish we had been way more productive than we were. I spent too much time having beer in beer gardens. Now, now <laughs> that I'm back to you know interviewing people over the internet, I really regret all the fun I had over the course of the summer. <laughs> Still, I mean, that sounds pretty good right about now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. Like, so I guess, yeah, let's kind of blend in the questions and discussion about stories, because I feel like I tend to ask about a story that got away. And I feel like that probably fits pretty well into that period of freelancing where you said you wanted to do more serious stories, but it wasn't really happening. So so maybe we can start there. And then for the story you're proud of, we can talk in depth about mm-hmm. Foreign Insiders, the podcast. So yeah, to start, if there's a story that got away that, you know, you couldn't sell an editor on, you couldn't get the right person to talk to you, a trip went badly, whatever the reason, but does something come to mind? I caught wind of this group of people working on a constructed language for all Slavic speakers. There are 400 million Slavic speakers in the world, and there were all of these different projects across Europe, I believe it's mostly groups working in Europe, to create a pan-Slavic language. And I heard about this, and they were having a conference a couple of summers ago and I thought oh I gotta go I had concert tickets I was really excited about but I said this is more important than that so I went I showed up at this conference and I think what I didn't realize before I went was that the whole thing was going to be in inter-Slavic in this constructed language which um which is like Esperanto for Slavic speakers yeah (laughs) yes and I've run it by a couple of Czech friends of mine, because I speak a great deal of Czech, but 
struggle and and i've said do you understand this is this and they've said no not really you know this is, this is not quite as <laughs> quite as intuitive as but a small sample size it could be a brilliant solution to the problem of speaking english yeah so i went to this conference and sat there trying desperately to figure out what was going on for the course of many hours and what was interesting, I did an interview with one of the creators of the language, and he really stressed that he's not working for the Kremlin. He expressed a lot of Russophobia, which I felt was somewhat <laughs> bizarre <laughs> for somebody in his position. Um, but I think it's a great story. In fact, this language was spoken in The Painted Bird, this World War II movie that came out. I believe last year, and he taught the language to Harvey Keitel. So there was this news hook, and I sort of let this opportunity huh. slip after trying to land it in many different places. But now that I'm working with audio, I think, ah, oh, maybe you know, maybe there's a reason that this didn't quite work out. I think audio would probably be a better medium to explore something like that. You know, for people who don't speak a Slavic language and might have a harder time dealing with it on the page. I also met this creator of another zonal constructed language while I was there who has a really interesting story. So I think a couple of things could come out of that experience, even though nobody was willing to take that piece. That makes sense about how it would work more in audio. And when you say you send it to everybody, how long was your list of people you would pick? <laughs> that one I don't remember. I remember someone at the New York Times was interested but not really interested you know i got one of those responses which was like <laughs> probably not but i'll think about it which you know you don't know what to do anything with and then of course you follow up like hey have you thought <laughs> are you thinking differently now you know have you had a shower and a good night's sleep and now you think differently about this great story idea i had those emails rarely go anywhere Okay, cool. And so to go now to a story you're proud of. So yeah, tell us the story behind what, what exactly was that story about the micronation and how did you go about doing it? That story, I had heard of this local politician, this Czech politician named Vitietlička, who had founded this, uh, he sort of named himself president of this micronation patch of land. It's about seven square kilometers on the Danube between Serbia and Croatia. And he, in 2015, went there with his girlfriend and another friend, and they unanimously voted him president of this nation on a disputed patch of land. And it's still unclear who this is going to belong to in the end. But there had been a few major pieces about it. There was a quite a long feature by Gideon Lewis Krauss in the New York Times magazine. And I was sort of keeping an eye on it. At the time, I don't know if they still do, but they had a office space in my neighborhood. And, you know, so they were kind of around. And I thought, what? Well, I'd like to write about these guys. And they had this conference. It was originally planned to be in Liberland on this sort of muddy <laughs> patch of land. And this was August 2016. And when I caught wind of that, I thought, now is the moment. And I had the email for an editor from GQ that I had found on Twitter, and uh, I thought, this is great. So I wrote him this pitch, which I read back today, and I thought, no, oh, this is pretty good. You know, no response. And then followed up a week later, you know, I got one line back. It said, pretty good pitch, but don't know how it's going to be different from the New York Times Magazine story. And, you know, and I said, you know, trust me, you know, your girl reporter is on the story. So, you know, we had this <laughs> long back and forth. And in fact, the timeline is absurd. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. So I pitched it August 7th, August 
15th, I got his one line response. He wants to know how it's going to be different. I said, okay, this is how it's all going to be different. And then this is so he says, okay, well, I need to research it more. I'll let you know early next week. And then early next week, nothing comes. And so I nudge him a week later. He says, still need some time to think about it. Are you going to go to the festival regardless? So I was sort of in this position. I thought, this is an incredible story. It was just getting weirder and weirder. The more details were coming in about what this conference was going to look like. Okay, it can't happen in Liberland on this little patch of land. It's going to happen in Serbia now and Novi Sad. And they were organizing a bus, which ended up being just a private car, a sedan, to drive from Prague to Serbia. And so I felt like I was in a tough position. <laughs> I thought there was an incredible story here. And I and I just I couldn't get him to say yes. And so it was a matter of, well, I can register for this conference and pay the money for this ride, this very long car ride to Serbia, or I could just let it go. But I decided, okay, this is, oh, this is a great opportunity. So I went and so by the time I finally heard from him, the conference was over and I said, I'm really sorry I couldn't get back to you. You had written me while I was there. And while I was there, it was just one thing after another. It was just one of those. It was the most exhausting weekend of my life because it just I was just surrounded by the most I don't know how to explain. I wrote of I remember I wrote a a message to a friend at the time saying, I thought I was surrounded by the funniest people in the world, but then I realized they were all taking themselves seriously. And that's <laughs> what it was like. It was like, I think in the piece, I ended up calling it a rich man sim city. But the fact that <laughs> all of these guys had invested so much time and energy and a great deal of money into making this country a, a reality, I just, I couldn't believe it. And sort of one thing, after the other happened over the course of of the weekend <laughs> but you know so then so I came back and I, I wrote my editor at GQ who was still not yet my editor was still not willing to commit and I came back with this <laughs> report and said oh, you know and then uh, this other thing happened and then they put us on this bus and they tried to send us to Croatia midnight and the, the police stopped us and I got a thing in my passport that said I'm not allowed into Croatia and then you know and I got hit on by this guy who claimed to be the inventor of Bitcoin and, you know, and he offered me a vaginal massage and, you know, and my editor's like, let me think about it. I mean, it just, <laughs> I still, looking back on it today, I couldn't believe what was going on. But finally he said yes and it got picked up and my expenses never, never got that, paid. But <laughs> What was the thing that ultimately sold him on it? Uh, I don't know. I think I just didn't go away. <laughs> I think I didn't go away and I think and finally he said okay I'll give you 1500 words at 50 cents a word and I knew there was no way I was gonna do it in 1500 words but I wrote the story that I wanted to write and I sent that to him and that was pretty close to what actually what finally ran but I just I mean <laughs> again it's one of those things like I don't think I have the energy to do that kind of thing now. And this was just a few years ago. But I knew there was something really important there. And it's funny, you know, we're recording the week after the insurrection in the U.S. Capitol building and watching that unfold. I was reminded of how frightening that experience was. I mean, it was just kind of insane, the experience of being at that conference over those couple of days. But it was really scary. And like I said, it was August 2016. And 
aside from the absurdity of the situation, there was so much anger in that room. There was so much frustration and so much racism and so much misogyny. But I was acutely aware of the fact that I was in the company of really powerful people <laughs> with ideas that shouldn't necessarily be taken seriously, and yet that had been blown out of proportion, and now we had no choice but to take them seriously. And I sort of felt like what was going on with Liberland was sort of a snapshot of what was going on in the U.S. at the time, what was going on in a lot of parts of the world. And ultimately, that story didn't run, didn't run, didn't run, and then I had to sort of tweak it after the election, uh, after the U.S. election. But I was really reminded of it this past week because that energy was undeniable and undeniably dangerous, I thought. And it still exists and it's still dangerous. It's still really scary. Right. Just the denial of reality, essentially. Um, <laughs> like, that makes sense to me. And so how long was the piece when it finally ran? And how was it different from the New York Times Magazine piece? Oh, God, I think it was closer to 3,000, maybe two and a half. And... It was different in that, you know, the New York Times piece, I can't remember exactly when it came out, but it was pre-Brexit. It was pre the Law and Justice Party took control of Poland, turned it upside down. And I think, I don't, I, to be quite honest with you, I'd have to look back at the, the New York Times piece. But that makes sense. I mean, uh, when they wrote about it, it was kind of a curiosity and like, when you wrote about it, there the, it was after the right-wing populist surge that yeah is based on a lot of dubious facts and denial of reality and things like that. So yeah. that makes sense to me that the context of it was different. Cool. And yeah, obviously, you know, you already mentioned it had a big impact on your career. It got a little bit easier after that, getting your pitches accepted, understandably. It's a major career milestone to get a story in a glossy magazine like that which is getting harder and harder, I would say. And so, so yeah, that and the podcast, I think those are great examples of your work. I mean, you had obviously listened to long form years early, starting years earlier, you'd gotten interested in podcasts and then started to think more seriously about it. And you went into this program and then create this podcast, Foreign Insiders, which I should say, and I should have said even before we started recording, that how we got in touch is one day I was looking for my podcast in, <laughs> you know, Spotify or whatever, and I searched foreign correspondence, and I saw a podcast named Foreign Correspondence, which is now Foreign Insiders. Yeah. And, you know, I had seen it and I was really like, oh, huh, what to make of this? And then I look it up. You guys had a website already. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is pretty slick. And I look at your bio and like, oh, NPR. Wow. <laughs> I should maybe be concerned about this, um, which I realized later, you know, you were a writer, but I was like, oh, wow, these people seem serious. So I was pretty nervous about like, what should I do? Should I just like pretend it's not happening. Oh, and Jake, then I, I, I sent so you an email. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm glad I did. I mean, you guys were super gracious about it. And you know, I didn't know how like, you know, you guys could tell me to go fuck myself for all I knew for all I thought. But I'm like, well, the worst case scenario, I feel like they just won't respond. And then we'll go about yeah. our lives. And like, you know, we you can know see it's not worth fighting over. 
No. So I, I re- I'm really happy that, uh, you know, this has worked out this way. You guys were super gracious. And thank you for not uh, turning it into a fight, which I, now that I know you, I know would have never happened. But uh, it's great the way it's worked out. You asked for my most embarrassing journalism moment, and that might be one of them. It's definitely up there. You know, we conceived of the show such a long time ago and, and just spent a lot of time thinking about the name and searching other podcasts. And when, when you launched in, when did you launch? Yeah, in the spring of 2019. 2019. Uh, May 2019, yeah. Yeah, which goes to show uh, how far back we were talking about this. And uh, yeah, at the time, there was no other foreign correspondence. And, and then it was like the day we were putting a teaser out. <sighs> I mean, and realized, oh, no, there's another one <laughs> and, and thought, well, we won't have any overlap in listenership. And we're just trying to sort of talk ourselves into this not being an issue. But of course, it was an issue. And you wrote me the kindest email about it. And it was enormously embarrassing for me. But I'm glad to be in touch with you. And I'm grateful for your graciousness about the situation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I totally, you know, know the feeling. I mean, when I was uh, launching, I wanted the name, like the correspondent. Oh, well, there's that whatever Dutch publication, the correspondent. Okay, I want the foreign correspondent. Okay, no, somebody else has that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for a little while, you're like, oh, maybe I could get away with doing the same. Uh, uh, oh, okay, foreign correspondence. Okay. So, it was. I mean, yeah, it wasn't my first choice. But in the end, I, I'm very glad with uh, how it turned out. uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that it is something people want to listen to. The name is just a way to look it up. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, to get into the podcast is a piece of work you're proud of. Kind of, yeah, walk us through it from start to finish, from first getting the idea to how you've structured it and how you're producing it. And just to give us a little sense of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I had an interest in trying out audio, working working on a podcast, and was ready for a project, a personal project. And I was talking to my friend Pepe, Giuseppe Picaca, and said, I'd like to do a podcast, and I think I'd like to do it with you. As you may know from hearing the podcast, he's got a great voice, but he also has a background in human rights. And he said, yes, I'd like to do that, and I'd like to do it about migration, the Czech Republic has a bad reputation for its openness to foreigners and outsiders, and particularly to refugees and asylum seekers. You know, last year, the European Court of Justice ruled that it had violated its obligations to take in asylum seekers in 2015 at the height of the refugee crisis. They were supposed to take in just shy of 2,000 and, in fact, took in 12. Uh, and... <laughs> You don't have to laugh. It's horrible to laugh, but it's, it's so absurdly awful. You almost have no choice. And the rhetoric that the president of this country has used to talk about asylum seekers, Muslims, people of color, foreigners in general is shocking, but not surprising. It's pretty appalling. And we also knew that we were in a pretty international community of people with great personalities and great stories to tell. And I think at the beginning, we thought we would really feature people that we knew and our friends a little more than we have or sort of stayed away from that. Although the first episode features a friend of Pepe's who I think has a really incredible story, a refugee from the former Yugoslavia. Yeah, that was where the idea came from. And so the idea is a 10 to 12 episode series featuring different groups of people, although we've taken on a couple of 
issues that unite the foreign population in this country. So most recently, we produced an episode about the problem of mental health care for non-Czech speakers in this country. Your options are really limited, especially if you are in crisis. You know, it's a country full of people who struggle with the language, and yet it's hard to get care sometimes if you can't manage in Czech, especially if you can't manage in Czech, you know, in the small time of day when there happens to be someone in, on staff at whatever hospital you're going to or a crisis center who can help you in another language. So that's the thrust of what we're doing. So yeah, I've listened to the first three episodes. It's pretty great. I liked the one especially about race relations in the Czech Republic and how, you know, I had no idea there were like demonstrations, for example, about this in the Czech Republic. You know, everybody was so focused on the US. So I thought that was very interesting to hear. And yeah, I mean, so far, I think it's been very strong. I know you have five episodes out. I need to listen to the next two. So do you think migration... Are there enough stories that you would plan to put out multiple seasons about that? Or is it the kind of thing where, how do you think it'll evolve as time goes on? I think we need to finish the 10 that we set out to, that we've committed ourselves to. And I'm looking at ways that maybe we could fund a second season. I mean, it's an expensive endeavor. It takes a lot of unpaid time. And, I'm, you know, I'm licensing music and these sorts of things. And I do the editing, research, mixing, you know, it's a big undertaking without sponsorship. So I'd love to continue the project, but we need to find a way to make it sustainable. So I guess maybe just pick one of your episodes of your podcast then that I guess it could be one that's already out or one that's not out because it'll be a few weeks before this airs. So maybe, yeah, just give us one episode and give us a little sense for it. What have we published? Oh, you know, the second episode, it's about the editors of Cock Team, which is a, a magazine for LGBT Kazakhs. And I hadn't heard about them. These two editors live in Prague. And for some reason, I wasn't aware of them until we started working on Foreign Insiders. And they founded this magazine, you know, while they were living in Kazakhstan. And you know, it's a tough place to be gay. And they couldn't be out, they couldn't be open. And they were trying to publish this magazine, switching on and off a of VPN and doing everything they could to protect their own privacy. And of course, the privacy of the people that are featured in the magazine. And finally, they decided to move to the Czech Republic, they got the opportunity and they came here. And living in this country has just opened up a great deal of possibilities for them. They can be free and live their lives. They no longer need to be anonymous. And they've become sort of beacons of hope for, for people in Kazakhstan. But they spoke really openly and critically about the LGBT community here in the Czech Republic, which they believe has sort of quit fighting for progress a little too early. So... I like that piece because it's tough. We've received the criticism that foreign insiders is tough to listen to if you're Czech. And it's true that sometimes when we're sort of plotting out which episode runs when, it just is like, wow, no, another racism story, you know, one after the other, somebody complaining about Czechs being racist. And I think that was a nice sort of departure because, it, you know, you, you saw both sides of the coin that this is a country that is progressive in so many ways and has made a lot of progress and is open-minded and where you can live a beautiful free life, but has a long way to go. And I think we saw that in that episode. So I'm proud of that one, but 
you know, all of them he <laughs> spends so much time with that they're all sort of personally meaningful in some way. Sure. Yeah. There's something about editing an episode of a podcast that you kind of get in there and roll around it in and kind of fully internalize it. That's definitely how I feel about my interviews after I spend, oh. you know, 10 hours editing an episode, like, you know, it backwards and forwards and it's kind of a part of you. You can't even hear them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that one starts out with some really harrowing stories about uh, gay people in Kazakhstan being beaten or threatened with death by even like their own family members. And it's pretty tough. But then they move to the Czech Republic, which, you know, as other episodes portray in many ways is not progressive, but is still in comparison to Kazakhstan is like a breath of fresh air. And like, it's so interesting to hear, you know, how nuanced it is. So I thought it's been really great about that, you know, telling these compelling stories that don't always have an obvious, you know, US, UK hook that so much of the journalism we get have to have. Thank you. Yeah. And those guys have a great sense of humor. And that's something that's been important to us. I mean, Pepe is such a goofball. And I, I sort of have a complex that Pepe gets to be the jokester and I have to play the straight man. But <laughs> <laughs> it's important to us. I think we feel, especially in local media, that the stories of quote-unquote migrants, which is a word that we've discussed many times, you know, do we use the language around foreigners as are they a foreigner, are they a migrant, are they a refugee, are they an expat, you know, are these distinctions that we want to make in the podcast. It's a conversation that we're having all the time. But I think the stories about people who have moved from more challenging places than the Czech Republic often get flattened out in local media and presented in two dimensions and stripped of their humor and complexity. And so it's important to us that each episode feature a little bit more texture, a little bit more humor, a little bit more warmth and humanity. So that's our approach. Yeah, but uh, so far so good. And I know you're you're going to a bit more forgiving of a schedule, I think you said every two weeks, but it's, it seems like, you know, by the time this airs, you'll probably have eight episodes out at least, I would imagine. So people should definitely go check it out. So next up is the lightning round. It'll be faster paced questions. So you can feel free to answer at whatever length you like. It's just not as long as telling your life story. So do you feel ready? Ready as I'll ever be. So first up is what is a must-read publication that you look at a lot to keep up on, I guess, the Czech Republic or Eastern Europe? I follow Czech radio, Český Roslas and E Roslas online, and uh, wish more people would read Radio Prague, their English arm. It's a very small staff, but they're doing good work, and they're all working from Czech. They're all Czech speakers, and I think Prague is a place, the Prague Post had a sort of unfortunate end it was once a great newspaper and folded ugh, i don't know eight years ago or something like that and this is a country in desperate need of a reliable english language news source and the fact that all of radio prague's reporters are reporting from czech they're not translating they're not repurposing other people's stories i wish there were more of that here i actually cut my teeth in radio freelancing for Radio Prague. I applied for a job from them that I didn't get, but they said, you know, this is the summertime and they said, everybody is going on holiday and we're short-staffed and can you just contribute some pieces to fill the time, some culture stories. And so, you know, they gave me an Eddie roll and uh, sent me out and <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. That was the first time I was working for radio and 
got the bug there. So I owe them a debt of gratitude. Cool. And then next up, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? It can be whatever medium, but has to be journalistic in nature. I love Monocle 24. And I will say, I think Andrew Muller, the Australian-born journalist based in London, is such a balm for the spirit. I was telling somebody recently, it's not that he makes the news better, but he does make it more palatable. He has such a brilliant sense of humor. And it's just total mystery to me why he's not an international superstar at this point. So I listen to Monocle 24 daily, I would say, largely for him. It's a daily podcast, right? The daily briefing, he's almost always on. And yeah, it's a delight. And it's a different perspective. It's so global. And I think that's as somebody who really consumes so much information, so much news through podcasts, it's really tough to find something with a truly international perspective. And, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And I, I feel out of the loop when I'm not listening to the daily the New York Times podcast, because it's harder to converse with friends or with my mother. But it's just such a, it is sort of myopic and, and it's an American focus and it's nice monocle and a couple of other places that really have a more global vantage point. For sure. Yeah. I listen to BBC radio most mornings. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just haven't gotten into the daily at the New York <laughs> Times. Uh, but I do question like, did I really need to know all that detailed information about this election in Africa? But it's it's kind of interesting to, to know about it absolutely. the BBC World Service. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know why I'm not listening to more BBC podcasts, frankly. I think it's just it's like making a new friend that you have to form a relationship over time. And it really takes kind of <laughs> commitment, honestly, to listen to the same thing over and over. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I know that that's totally true. It's like I listen to certain podcasts and I hear spots for the same other podcast over and over or their network and I will never look it up. I'll listen to 500 episodes and I will never look up this other thing yeah. and I'll be like out of stuff and it just won't occur to me, although I'm starting to get a little bit better at that. <laughs> Let's see. And then what's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? And I mean, recently, very, very vaguely, mostly just something that's made an impression. <laughs> I mean, I'm so podcast focused at the moment, but Canary, the podcast for the Washington Post reported by Amy Britton, it sort of begins with a story of about sexual assault in the Washington, D.C. area, but ends up being sort of two stories in parallel that come together really beautifully in a really moving way. And it's really great storytelling with great characters that's not manipulative in any way and doesn't sacrifice the integrity of the reporting in any way. I think it's the last podcast I binged and it's really pleasurable and it really hooks you, but in a way that's, that's you know, journalistically sound. So I, I loved it. Cool. I hadn't heard about that one. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Is there any particular subject matter that you geek out about that isn't specifically related to your job? Ooh, um, there's a parallel life in which I'm a health and science reporter. <laughs> I think that like good science reporting is so good, you know, and because I a few years ago was having these sort of issues and, and it was functional medicine that really helped me feel better. And so I'm definitely interested in human health and nutrition and this sort of thing, which I really can't imagine myself writing about now. But yeah, it's definitely an interest of mine. Cool. And that kind of feeds into the next question, which is 
how do you manage your work-life balance, which <laughs> I'd be interested to hear after your recent readjustments. <laughs> well, you know, when you live alone in a pandemic, you don't, I guess. <laughs> but I think that loving your work makes a big difference. And that's something that feels pretty new to me. I really love what I'm working on now. And so working a little too much makes a big difference. Also investing in a, a monitor. I don't know, I've been freelancing for what, seven, eight years, and I just got a monitor. And after developing <laughs> occipital neuralgia and really being in tremendous pain, makes a big difference. But I don't know how to answer the work-life balance question. I, I'm afraid it I don't have much of a life, but nor does anybody really. So I don't feel so bad about it. Not right now. Yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, I would say if I didn't have such involved work, I would probably go crazy. So <laughs> it, it's kind of been good to have work to throw myself into. Totally. You know what I would say, though, is I'm stricter than almost any other freelancer I know in that I start work at nine and I stop at six. I think it's almost rare to set that kind of boundary with editors and clients. But when you do, I, I think most people respect it or they respect it more and more. So it must be difficult with time differences, though, is the one thing I would say. Yeah, that's like, absolutely true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, because like, especially when it's daylight savings in the US. I mean, it's not so bad in Brazil. I was in China before where it obviously was a much bigger time difference. But you know, you get editors who, you know, it's the end of their day, five o'clock or whatever, but it's like eight, nine o'clock here. Uh, it can be kind of a drag. Yeah, you're right. And then the next question is, is Twitter important to you? Twitter is a funny question in the Czech Republic. It really wasn't so widely used until recently. So yeah, I mean, Twitter is great in a kind of primal scream sense, if you feel like the world is falling apart, and we're all going to be trapped in this sort of hellscape forever. It's great to go on Twitter and feel like, okay, you know, other people are miserable too. Uh, and it's a great place to find ideas. But Czech Twitter has really become a more and more vibrant place over the last last couple of years, last year for sure. So yeah, it's more and more important to me, actually. Cool. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I've thought about this a lot. And I thought about a couple of people whose careers I envy because they're so linear because they started working, you know, for instance, they started working in public radio, straight out of college and work their way up and up and up and up. I have to believe that taking a circuitous route to whatever you do has to pay off somehow. <laughs> it has to make you a more interesting or complex person or writer <laughs> or whatever, or, or, you know, more nuanced. Right. So a couple of people come to mind who didn't go directly to where they are now. One is Krista Tippett the host of On Being, who was a stringer for the New York Times in the 1980s, a sort of right place, right time situation. I believe she also had a sort of bit of burnout that changed her life. But now she talks with people about abstract ideas and their feelings all day. And that sounds great to me. I just admire her on many levels. She's talked about she, I think in the long form podcast, she talked about doing a sort of Vulcan mind meld with her interviewees and how she really wants to get them in order to bring them into a place of comfort in her interviews. And I think she's really great at what she 
what she does. I don't listen to on being religiously, but when I do, I'm really impressed by her as much as I am by anybody in the other chair. And then somebody else that I really admire, although I know less of his work, is David Kestenbaum, who's a producer for This American Life. And he had a previous career as a nuclear physicist and then started doing some science reporting for public radio and now is at This American Life. And my very favorite This American Life episode is his it's a the first act is called Fermi's Paradox or the whole episode is called Fermi's Paradox but the first act is him talking to the This American Life team and then to some former colleagues of his I think about the Fermi's Paradox which is this concept that you know there's all this potential life out there there is life on other planets <laughs> like where is it you know there are all these but there's so much potential where is it and he is just crippled with sadness over the idea that maybe there's nothing else out there. <laughs> and him trying to talk this through with Ira Glass and other people is so moving because they just don't get it. Ira talks about in Annie Hall when young Alfie Singer is in the classroom and he's depressed and the teacher's like, what's up? And he says, the universe is expanding. And she goes, why is that any of your business? And Ira Glass says to David Kestenbaum, why is that any of your business? Like, What does this have to do with you? <laughs> and he just doesn't get it. I find it so moving. There's another one where he's trying to explain to Ira Glass this app called Universe splitter i think it is and it's sort of the idea is this this app helps you make decisions by creating two separate universes in which both possibilities occur and <laughs> i think my point is that having his background allows him to bring in a totally distinctive set of metaphors that people with you know another set of experiences might not bring to that program so i love his way of looking at the world and I think I'm a, an advocate for taking a circuitous route to various careers over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, those are two good choices. Let's see, what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I like almost everybody. I think my portfolio <laughs> reflects, I think I'm less and less snarky the older that I get. I think I'm equally critical, but you see it less on the page than you did a few years ago. But I, I really have an open mind to unprovable things, to unscientific approaches, to abstract concepts that have no bearing in reality. And what I really love the most are people who are really into whatever they're into, is to people who are obsessed with things that might be embarrassing to talk about even the last long-form magazine piece that I was commissioned was about astrology. I had learned about this sort of movement, this group of licensed psychotherapists using astrology in their work, and I had a really tough time. I felt like the magazine I was working for wanted something that was more critical than I could be, that was more dismissive than I could be, and I, first of all, I saw it. I talked to several different people who took a look at my birth chart and saw parts of me that I'm not proud of and, and are complicated. And I really felt like they were reflecting me back to me in a way that totally caught me by surprise. But I was really open to it. What I hated about that Liberland piece was spending so much time with people who seemed 
in a lot of ways hateful and small-minded and dismissive of me as a woman. That kind of thing I don't have tolerance for. But unprovable things, crazy things, goofy things, I love that. I'm so moved and sort of envious of people who are obsessed with whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. And so I bring admiration of people, of different kinds of people to my work. That's the answer. That's I'm ending this now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's certainly a good way to find compelling characters to drive your stories is, yeah, people who are really focused on one thing, uh, yeah. no matter what the rest of the world says. Let's see. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I'm having fun now in a way that I wasn't for a while. And I think I wish younger me knew what a priority that should be to enjoy what, what you're doing. And having a sense of purpose is not just a luxury. I remember one of my parents saying to me, like, it's called a job because it's work. And that's true. I mean, nobody does anything that is great all the time. And I'm not currently making very much money doing something that brings me great joy. But I believe that those things are more compatible than I once did. And I think it's important to prioritize your own pleasure. And I think that journalists in general are often more willing to be unhappy than they maybe need to be. And that suffering is sort of baked into the job in a way that makes you tough, makes you, gives you grit, helps you to tough it out through difficult periods and projects. But I think I suffered a little bit more than I needed to. I think it's important to have a bit of fun as well. I would agree. Um, it's very, very easy to forget that. But <laughs> I try to have a fun, like even if it's just, you know, the rush of breaking news, like th there's no reason you got to be so serious about it. You can like it's kind of thrilling and fun. It can be fun, you know, this kind of quick break stuff yeah and uh often i'm grumpy about it and i shouldn't be um <laughs> let's see then what is one question you might suggest for the lightning round that you would like to ask other journalists <laughs> i would ask you know are you comfortable talking about money i wish more people were upfront about how much they get paid frankly I think people need to know, especially freelancers, maybe exclusively freelancers. I don't think that everybody needs to be totally upfront about their salaries. But I think we need to dispel myths about how much freelance work pays, how much freelance work pays for the glossies, you know, the most desirable publications. I think everybody needs to be more open in sharing freelance rates. Yeah, it's been nice to see some publications putting out like guides on how to approach them with stories to make the whole process more accessible than, yeah, like you said, just having to dig up editors' emails anywhere. And that tends to give greater privilege to those with connections and existing privilege and that need this kind of transparency to get more diversity in freelancing, basically. But even the language in this conversation, you know, I hear people talk about editors like as some kind of elite class of untouchables. And I just think that's no way to, to enter into a professional relationship. I, I just think a greater degree of transparency. And also, I wish I had known early on my ideas are, are valid <laughs> and we're doing a service when we pitch our ideas out there, it can feel so much like you're asking for a handout, asking for a favor when you're just trying to 
get those first bylines and create a body of clips. I don't think it should feel that way. If you're doing your work well, you're putting in considerable thought about the publication that you're pitching, their audience, and the subject matter that you want to write about. And that's an act of service to an editor or a magazine. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, I mean... I have definitely met editors who think that of themselves. Oh, that totally. They are class <laughs> but uh, most of them are, are nice, normal people. <laughs> then to try out some of uh, the newer questions people have suggested. So we talked about having fun. What what part of your you know day to day work would you say you enjoy the most? Uh, the day to day, you know, I don't do enough interviewing. I love talking to people and I can't do enough of it. it you know, it's just, nothing else feels so good. Now I'm in this place where I'm working with a music library and trying to score episodes and that magic moment when the music works so beautifully with the tape is just so satisfying. It can be exhausting sifting through libraries and trying to find the right thing but when it works oh and i know this will probably get old the more that i that i do this work but at the moment the editing process is really a joy putting these episodes together is is really a joy largely because of the music that's funny uh because yeah i interviewed a guy yesterday who's been you know a radio reporter for 20 years and he said the exact same thing really? he likes the part where yeah it gets to the end and you're finishing it up and putting in the music and it kind of like you put in the music and then it all just kind of is comes together <laughs> when it works um so oh. yeah it's a guy uh scott gurry and he runs a, oh, a I know podcast called far from home yeah 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 and then this one, I don't know how much it works, but just in case anything comes to mind, but somebody wanted to know if there are any particular interview tactics you employ that might be a little bit different. You know, they say to create silence, the space that people need to fill. And I only, I think, deploy that tactic when things are really, it's like SOS, SOS, you know, this is like cannot be saved and there's not a great rapport and the interview is going down the drain, you know, then yeah, I'll try that out. But I think that sharing a bit about yourself is the best trick in my book so that it feels more like a conversation and also showing, demonstrating, you know, like the Krista Tippett thing, demonstrating that you get the person is hugely important. Yeah, that's good advice for interviews. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? So I was going to mention Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, but that was mentioned in your recent episode uh, with Charles Maines, so I'm not going to repeat myself. But I will say when I learned how to work in a radio studio, but not so much how to tell stories and audio, how to score stories and this sort of thing, I picked up a copy of Out on the Wire, Jessica Abel's book about making radio. And she is a cartoonist. It's actually like a, it's a cartoon guide to making radio. And she spent a lot of time with the producers of This American Life and other really big American radio shows, not as somebody who intended to make radio herself, but just as somebody who was fascinated by the process of it. And as a textbook, it's one of the most invaluable pieces of work I've come across. It's such a great resource for people who are starting out. And it's a comic 
book. So it's like a delightful reading experience. So I would really recommend that to anybody who's thinking of starting a podcast. It was a great help to me. Cool. Yeah, no, that sounds up my alley. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I'd probably be terrible at it, but in the universe splitter version of alternative reality, there's some universe in which like, I get a psychology degree and become a therapist and just get to chat with people and ask nosy questions all day, Um, but also help people, which is becoming more and more important to me. So yeah, I think that's what I would pick. Cool. Yeah, no, you could focus on the conversations and not have to worry so much about, you know, going and writing it up afterwards. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And none of that, that boring, you know, lonely part alone and less screen time, which I think is a really important thing. Great. Okay, cool. Well, that's all the questions. So I'll just end by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Morgan. Thank you, Jake. It's really nice to talk to you. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Morgan Childs, co-host and producer of the Foreign Insiders podcast based in the Czech Republic. I'll post links to some of Morgan's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, March 28th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.